Hey, dear listener, I'm all alone this week. Rusana is in an internet dead zone somewhere in Sakhalin. She should be back next week or perhaps the week after. It's too bad she's not here because our interview this week is on vampires, and I'd love to know what Rusana's take is on it. But be that as may, this week's guest, Irina Ehrman, is the recipient of the Levin Article Prize. The prize is named in honor of Eve Levin, the long-serving editor of the Russian Review. And if you don't know what the Russian Review is, it's one of the premier academic journals in Russian studies. The Levin Prize is given for the best article published in the Russian Review over the calendar year. And the beauty of it is, is that you don't even have to enter your article. It's automatically considered just by being published in the journal. So like I said, this week's interview is about vampires and not just the mythology of those romantic bloodsuckers in literature and movies and culture and film. It's much more than that. Um, it's about how vampires stand for something else, how they stand for a border between West and East and a figure to interrogate Russian identity. Arena's article delves into this in the short story by Alexei Tolstoy, the cousin of the famous Lev Tolstoy, um, The Family of Vudalak, which is a short vampire story he wrote about somewhere between the 1830s to 1840s, it's unclear. So I hope you really enjoyed this interview because I surely did. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. And if you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the SRB podcast and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So our guest today is Irina Ehrman. She's an assistant professor of Russian studies and the director of the Russian studies program at the College of Charleston. And her research focuses on marginality, performativity, and monstrosity in 19th and 20th century Russian literature. She's the author of a number of articles on Fyodor Dostoevsky and Vasily Rezanov. And her most recent article, which we'll talk about today, is entitled Nation and Vampiric Narration in Alexei Tolstoy's The Family of the Vudalak, which was published in the January 2020 issue of Russian Review, and like I said in the introduction, the recipient of the Levin Prize for the best article published in the Russian Review. Uh, you can find a link to this article, in case you're interested in reading it, at the SRB podcast website. So just check it out there. So here's Irina Ehrman. So um, you're the winner of this Eve Levin Prize for the best article published in the Russian Review in 2020. And uh, the article is entitled Nation and Vampiric Narration in Alexei Tolstoy's The Family of Vudalak. And uh, I'm, sure the, I'm sure the vampire angle worked in your favor. I can't imagine it not. Um, but just to start this conversation, can you tell me who was Alexei Tolstoy well, um, Alexei Konstantinovich Tolstoy, I kind of refer to him sometimes as the other other Tolstoy. Um, 
Because, so he was a second cousin of Lev Tolstoy, of course, um, the author of War and Peace. Um, and we also have another author by the name of Alexei Tolstoy, Alexei Nikolaevich, who's a 20th century, of course, the author of Ailita, among other works. But Alexei Konstantinovich Tolstoy, he is um, older than both of them. So he was born in 1817 and he passed away in 1875. He was uh, an exceptionally well-educated, widely traveled um, young man, um, and also a childhood companion of the future czar, Alexander II. So he's obviously from the Tolstoy family, a very prominent family. Um, but his parents divorced uh, when he was extremely young, and then neither one of them showed any particular interest in raising him. And so he came under the influence of his uncle. Uh, Antoni Pogadielski, who was a well-regarded um, romantic writer. And so this is um, the man that shaped the young Alexei Konstantinovich Tolstoy and really helped to inspire his interest in literature, um, as well as particularly his interest in the Gothic and the Gothic Romantic. Uh, Pogorelsky, from what I remember, was actually an acquaintance of E.T.A. Hoffman's. And so, the, um, and so he's the one that really influenced uh, Tolstoy's interest in literature. But as, yeah, as an author, um, A.K. Tolstoy is probably better known uh, as Kuzma Prutkov. Um, and so this was a collaborative pen name that he came up with together with um, the brothers Zemchuznikov in the 1850s. And so they published a bunch of satires under this name. And he also published um, some really well-regarded um, historical dramas um, and a historical novel. And so he's actually much better known, if he's known at all, um, you know, of all the famous Tolstoys. Of course, it's it's a little bit difficult to stand out, but he's he's a little bit better known for these works of the 1850s, 1860s. But the text that I um, wrote the article on is um, one of his really early works um, that are dated more to the early 1840s, at which point he wrote a couple of um, vampire-themed stories, obviously under the influence of, you know, uh, the readings that he was uh, doing together with his uncle, right, and under the influence of his travels in Europe um, as a young man and as a young diplomat. And um, so he he published one of these stories, um, and it was in Russian. It was called Upyr, uh, which is you know the Slavic word for vampire. This was published in 1841, and he published it under a pseudonym, and so no one really knew it was him. It was. Um, under the, the pen name of Krasnogorsky, because this was kind of his first foray into the literary scene, and he wanted to test the waters. And so unfortunately, the test of the waters didn't come out as well as he had hoped. Um, the story uh, generally did not meet with a good reception. There were some jeering responses. And in general, he, I think, was really happy that he published it under a pseudonym. Can I, can I interrupt you for a second? Because, because there is this tradition of publishing under a pseudonym? What is what is the impetus for this? Why why publish under a pseudonym? 
Well, I mean, I think in his particular case, he is a young diplomat. He has a diplomatic post. He is, you know, from a uh, a very highly placed aristocratic family. And uh, so I think sometimes, right, these are just kind of ways in which authors distance their literary persona from, you know, their aristocratic persona. But in other ways, this is also part of, you know, a romantic um, and gothic literary tradition, right, to where um, there would be all sorts of mystifications that sometimes accompany uh, publication. So, for you know, for example, one of the texts that Tolstoy obviously read and was obviously influenced by was uh, um, Prosper Mary May's text, La Guzla, which Mary May published um, pretending that this was a collection of Serbian folk tales that have been collected by this Serbian bard, right? Um, and so there is a certain amount of mystification that sometimes goes into, uh, you know, Gothic texts in particular. And so, you know, in, in terms of his personal motivation, I think also as a young writer, um, there was maybe just some interest in having a little bit of privacy as he made his first foray into the literary scene. And so it, no one knew that it was him. And um, so a lot of the reception was not great. Um, but uh, Belinsky um, in, actually wrote a very brief review of the text in which he said, um, this, uh, this text demonstrates the signs of a still youthful <laughs> Right. So he's being he's being nice here, but a nonetheless remarkable talent. And so he said that there was a lot of future promise, but, you know, he still needed to do a little bit of work. <laughs> um, and and so, you know, after this reception, which uh, Tolstoy was not very happy with, he ended up not publishing the story that my article is actually focused on. So the family of the Vurdalak, which was written at about the same time. So this is something like the very late 1830s or the early 1840s. And he never published it during his lifetime. And he switched actually to a different genre once he starts publishing again in the 1850s and 1860s. So he do you have a, do you have a sense of like, because it sounds like uh, the fact that the first story uh, since it didn't get, you know, make any big splash and he was kind of, you know, not really recognized. Do you have a sense of the impact it had on him as, you know, personally? Did the fact that he didn't publish the story or it wasn't published until after his death, um, you know, do you have any sense of how that review or the lack thereof impact him? Well, you know, one of the things about him is we actually uh, have a really meager archive for A.K. Tolstoy, and we just, we have so few resources, particularly primary resources, to draw on to really um, suss out the details of his uh, personal correspondence very often. And so, you know, some of the conclusions I draw are more, you know, just from the fact that he never published The Family of the Vordalak, for example, right, that he kind of switches genres. And so I think that testifies, obviously, to, um, you know, his disappointment at the flop, of the first story, Upir. But um, yes, with him, we have uh, significantly fewer sources to draw on generally um, to get more details um, about his private life. So 
tell me what uh, what this story, the family of Woodlock, is all about. Well, it's it's hard to know where to start with this one because you know, first of all, it has a lot of really striking plot elements. You know, for instance, the conclusion of the story it features uh, this uh, French. Uh, nobleman being chased out of a Serbian village by a, a throng of vampires. And so he's retreating from this vampire army of villagers that are chasing him. And at one point, um, this vampire mother takes her vampire baby and throws it at him. <laughs> okay. And it's just such a, a shocking, incredible scene. If you know, so it's kind of like the child catapult, right? That is being used in warfare. And so this vampire baby lo- latches onto the neck of his horse. <laughs> um, and so the story is really striking, has really striking images like, like this one in the conclusion, you know, kind of, you know, ridiculous in a way, but also really um, cinematic, um, uh, which probably explains why there have been um, at least two very loose film adaptations, yes, of the text, one Russian and one Italian from what I can remember. But um, but yes, yeah, so, but the story just in ge- the, the general plot line is that um, the there is a frame narrative where there um, there's a group of people that are gathered in Vienna in 1815. So during the Congress of Vienna, um, um, which concluded the Napoleonic Wars, and so they are um, they have a storytelling competition in which this one uh, French aristocrat decides to participate, and so his name is um, Marquis Durfey, and so he tells a story of a time when he was young, so in 1759 when he traveled through Eastern Europe, and so he describes this encounter with um, a Serbian. Uh, village in which right this wave of vampire attacks uh, begins, um, and so <laughs> that's the basic plot. But there's there's there are so many really interesting details in it. So besides uh, uh, the you know roving vampire army and flying vampire babies, which honestly uh, that's a nut, that got me. Um, <laughs> uh, what was it about this story that that drew you to to you know write something about it? So. Per- what I was really struck with um, when I started looking at it was the specificity of the dates um, and the locations. And why? Because um, I was teaching a vampire class at the time when I first came across the story. And so I knew these dates as being particularly significant already from my previous research into um kind of the vampire history, right? And so first of all, in 1815, you have this um, kind of, you know, you have the end of um, the Napoleonic Wars and you have this entry of Russia in a big way as a player on the world stage after the defeat of Napoleon, right? And you also have uh, Russian soldiers in Europe in mass at this point, right? And so in the story, there's even this line um, that Tolstoy inserts into it. The victorious Russian soldiers were anxiously awaiting um, their return to their abandoned homes, right? Because they had um, had to pursue Napoleon into Europe. And so this is a significant date in European history, in Russian history. And this is actually the very first line of the family of the Vordelak, which is a little bit strange to see in a vampire story. 
for a couple of reasons, right? Generally speaking, um, Gothic fiction does not like uh, specific dates. They, it tends to prefer this kind of a far away, you know, uh, mysterious place, right? And so it doesn't really do specific historical dating. For instance, you know, Congress of Vienna is taking place. And then the second date, which is when the Marquis d'Urfey, the narrator, um, says he had this encounter in the Serbian village. Um, so 1759 is also um, really a significant time in the history of uh, vampire folklore, of vampire mythology, because this was a time when Western Europe became really enthralled with uh, the figure of the Eastern European vampire. And so it told me two things about Tolstoy's story right away. One, with the Congress of Vienna opening, he appears to be very interested in the interaction between Russia and Western Europe. Um, and two, with the second date of 1759, it told me that um, he is obviously no knowledgeable about Western European vampire um, interest at this time. And, it, you know, it, that, that supposition proves to be true very quickly because once we read into the story, he actually has direct quotes from a really famous um, 18th century treatise that is written by Dom Augustine Calme um, that was basically a compilation of all of these various vampire stories uh, from the late 17th and early 18th century, which is called, yeah, called the Treatise on the Vampires of Hungary and the surrounding regions. And so Tolstoy actually has direct quotes from the treatise and kind of calls it out by name. And so it tells me that um, his story is very self-conscious about these particular dates and about this particular cultural context of um, East versus West vampire mythology. Right, right. Yeah, the, the it's, it's clear, and I've seen this in other places, the vampire, you know, playing a, a very metaphorical role in, in many cases, and a lot of your article is about that. But first, you know, where does this, I, this, the, what are the origins of, of the vampire folklore in Slavic culture and how did it kind of bleed into, you know, Europe? As with folklore, it's, it's often very difficult to trace some kind of a specific um, origin point, right? Because, of course, this is a, these are oral traditions um, not written down for centuries. So we do have a little bit of a written record. Um, so from the first time we really see the term upir, which is uh, the Slavic term for vampire, it appears in an old Russian manuscript in 1047 AD, for example. And so in that manuscript, a Russian prince is described as an upir for his activities. And so this is way before Dracula, of course. Right. Um, and so we do know that um, right, there is even a written reference to the term that goes back um, to the 11th century. Um, and then we know that there is a lot of oral folklore as well. Uh, so, for instance, the famous uh, folklorist uh, Alexander Afanasyev, um, who collected so many um, Russian folk tales in the 19th century during that general 19th century craze for collecting um, right national folklores. And so he uh, published in 1869 a book called Poetic Views of the Slavs Regarding Nature. 
And in it, he actually has um, a really lengthy discussion of vampire beliefs and even a definition of, of vampires. So it, while it is difficult to pinpoint a specific kind of origin point, we do know that there's certainly a presence and a history of vampire-related folklore and belief um, in a Slavic culture. Um, and, you know, and this would include, of course, Russian culture, um, Serbian, um, right, other parts of Eastern and Southeastern Europe. But at the same time, I think it's important to note that vampire beliefs are not exclusive to Slavic cultures. And actually, most nations will have some kind of a, a vampire figure. Um, many cultures will have uh, vampire type figures. And so you see them in Asia, you see them in South America, and they just manifest in different ways. What's interesting, and this is partly what my article discusses, is the ascription of vampire belief, beliefs very specifically to Eastern Europe, as if Eastern Europe is the definitive source of vampire folklore and belief. And one of the things that my article and many scholars um, before me point out is the fact that some of these ideas about what Eastern Europe is and what Eastern Europe believes are constructions that are in many ways, um, to use uh, Edward Said's term, orientalist. Um, and they're coming not necessarily from that culture, but they're coming from the Western perceptions of Eastern Europe. Why vampirism is the thing that serves as this, one of the many metaphors to de demarcate, say, East and West. And then to the point where it causes, you know, what, what scholars have said, a kind of mania or obsession or fear in Western, in some Western European cultures for, uh, over the vampire. This is this is kind of a two-part question, I think, right? So the first part of the question is, why does this obsession with vampirism arise precisely when it does, which is roughly in the first half of the 18th century in Western Europe specifically, which we've already stated that absolutely there are uh, vampire-related um, beliefs and there's vampire-related folklore in Eastern Europe um, that dates uh, definitely quite a bit before the 18th century. But the, the vampiromania, if you will, which is what um, some, some scholars have called it, why does it arise in Western Europe at the time that it does? which is in the first half of the 18th century. And there are two kind of primary reasons for that. Um, one is that uh, the Enlightenment in Western Europe in the beginning of the 18th century has to construct itself and identify itself in a way vis-a-vis -vis some other darker shadow half, right? And so... Um, uh, Boris Wolf has a fantastic book, which is called Inventing Eastern Europe, where he discusses this, um, this issue in the sense that, um, how do you identify yourself as enlightened? Uh, well, you then come up with this rather arbitrary division between, um, the East and the West, and you locate, um, the darker, uh, mystical beliefs and irrationality and this kind of, um, you know, mythological, um, creatures and you locate them in Europe's Eastern 
path. And so part of it is this kind of enlightenment identity coalescing around um, this other half. And then the other part is that it's actually kind of more geopolitical, really, is that what happens is there is a lot of border realignment in um, Eastern and Southeastern Europe at this time in the early 18th century. Um, so there are a lot of, of wars um, and skirmishes with the Ottoman Empire. And so what happens is in, in 1718, um, the Austrian Empire gains control of uh, parts of Serbia and parts of Wallachia, which had previously been under the control of the Ottoman Empire. And so the Austrian Empire brings in soldiers and bureaucrats to take possession of these territories. And this is when Western Europeans are confronted with these uh, peasant beliefs. And so there are kind of, right, there are two reasons why, um, you know, this turns into a vampire mania. Number one is this enlightenment um, need to create an other who would be, right, this kind of uh, Western Europe subaltern double. And then geopolitically, this opportunity presents itself in actual contact with um, this Eastern European other, where they discover the set of beliefs about vampirism, about the dead rising from the grave. Which, you know, interestingly enough, there are many, many, many more reports of vampire activity in um, these occupied uh, lands than ever before or ever again, just as these bureaucrats are kind of taking over. And so that's the other interesting thing is I almost see it as a guerrilla resistance strategy <laughs> in a way. But what happens is this is Western Europe's encounter really with um, its imagined East and they see what they want to see in a way, right? They see a confirmation of their stereotypes that these are ignorant people. They're not uh, rational like the enlightened Western Europeans. They have all these irrational mystical beliefs. And so then they become absolutely obsessed with it. And so they start recording this endlessly. And these recordings make it all over Europe. So if it starts um, with official reports to the Austrian emperor, um, then, you know, um, they become really, really fascinating in France. They eventually make their way to England. And so then very quickly, they start to make their way into literature in the figure of the vampire. Now, your article, though, it, it's interesting because there's a bit of a twist because Tolstoy's story is also a, um, a reflection on the self in terms of the identity as, as being Russian, right? And, and here you have this interesting thing of, um, you know, the anxiety about Russian culture and is it part of the West? What, what is it? And, and the idea of, of imitation or, you know, to put it in stark vampire terms, the sucking <laughs> of Europe by, say, you know, Russian, you know, intellectuals, let's say. So, so what is this anxiety about that Tolstoy is trying to, that you say Tolstoy is kind of commenting on? Yeah, um, well, you know, the first thing to note about this article is that Tolstoy wrote it in French. 
Um, and, and, you know, he, of course, spoke fluent French, uh, like all the other well-educated nobles of his time. And so what this signals is um, the Europeanization, um, Europeanization, or the Westernization of the Russian uh, nobility um, in um in the wake of Peter the Great's reforms. And so Peter the Great's reforms um, obviously um, were meant to kind of put Russia on the European stage to declare Russia as a westernized power. But at the same time, it did cause quite a bit of cultural anxiety over this issue that what does it mean to be authentically Russian? If all of our nobles are speaking French as a first language and Russian exclusively as a second language, um, this anxiety becomes particularly acute right at the time that Tolstoy dates his story, which is 1815, the Congress of Vienna. Why? Well, because all of the Russian nobles are fighting the French in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and at the same time, they're discovering, I would say to their horror, some of them, that um, they have more in common with the French officers that they are fighting than with their own peasant soldiers, whom they frequently do not even understand. <laughs> And so these anxieties really become very acute right around this time um, as they're fighting and then ultimately defeating Napoleon. So Russia has just really legitimately entered um, the European stage in a big way. And at the same time, our nobles are all speaking French. So then what is, does it mean to be, you know, what is, what is a Russian literature and what does it mean to be authentically Russian? And so Tolstoy is very aware of that. I also wonder, too, where, you know, the, the defeat of Napoleon is also one of the first instances where you have a recognition or even the birth of a Russian nation and the sense that, you know, the lower classes are participating in this grand, you know, war that's bringing some of them, too, to, to Europe. And I, I can't, I wonder if the recognition of, say, the Narod or the power of the Narod in this conflict by Russian nobilities also lends to that, that anxiety as well. As you said, that they, they don't see themselves in the people, the Russian people. They see themselves actually in the French and the French. And I wonder if that also might contribute to, wow, what is the nation I'm going back to? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Because so much, um, you know, if we think of Chadayev or other philosophers of the 19th century, Alexei Khamenkov at one point said the Russian upper class um, is a colony of eclectic Europeans thrown into a country of savages. <laughs> and so <laughs> you're absolutely right. So there, there are a couple of issues here. Right. And this is ultimately what ends up leading to our, you know, Slavophile versus Westernizer philosophical split um, is how do you solve this problem? So how do you search for this Russian identity? Um, do you embrace this Europeanization, this Westernization wholeheartedly? Or do you then um, kind of try to find some pre-Westernized Russianness um, by, you know, connecting with the Narod in some way? Um, so where does where does the vampire fit in all this? I mean, you have this this really great line. I should have I should have brought it up, but the circular nature, the fact that he wrote this in French and it's taken from a Slavic, 
you know, folklore, which is uh, taken, you know, brought to Europe through <laughs> through your, this European, you know, quote unquote, ethnography of, of Slavic cultures. And it's like this translation of a translation of a translation. Uh, so for Tolstoy in this story, how does it represent the, the figure of the vampire? How does it fit into this anxiety over Russia's identity? So, of course, there's the obvious way in which he's very clearly an excellent reader of literature and folklore that came before him. And so he's noticing that there is this fetishization of Eastern Europe that is happening, right? And so because he's actually quoting from some of these texts that are doing that, for example, you know, Calme's treatise on vampires. And so he's aware that, uh, you know, the Eastern Europe is being constructed in a way by the West as the location for these mythological creatures and as, as, as associated with them. But I think that um, he is also very sophisticated in the sense that I think he is making a connection between um, this accusation that Russia is simply imitating the West, or as you put it in one of your previous questions, right, kind of sucking culture out of the West because it is fundamentally empty. And so this is actually um, something that uh, primarily French thinkers were writing about Russia in the 18th century. And so even as the philosophes were corresponding with uh, Catherine the Great, they were still writing these things about Russia, about how it was fundamentally uncivilized, it was uncultured, and essentially kind of empty of culture um, without the infusion of Western culture that it was then receiving. And so when um, Chayadayev, for example, um, the famous philosopher, restates some of these same issues in the 19th century, he, first of all, of course, does it in French. <laughs> and second of all, he really is just restating some of the things that he had read um, in um, French philosophy of the 18th century. And so um, being an extremely well-educated man, I think Tolstoy is very aware of these uh, discourses, of these discussions. And so I do think that he's very self-consciously uh, playing with this issue of vampirism as a uh, an emptiness that sucks, you know, whether life or culture imitates um, other cultures. And I think he's really groundbreaking in this sense, because when Russian thinkers towards the end of the 19th century start to um, want to rethink this issue of Russian imitation of the West, to kind of think of it in a more positive way, um, they also um, start to fixate on this issue of emptiness. And particularly what I'm thinking of is the really famous 1880 Pushkin speech by Fyodor Dostoevsky, where he says, well, it's not this kind of, you know, it's not a negative emptiness. It's not an issue. It is rather um, a universal receptivity that allows Pushkin to take on the qualities to incarnate the genius of other nations. And Dostoevsky claims that this is something that Pushkin shares with the Russian Narod, this ability to take in um, the genius of other nations. So he kind of tries to reconfigure this in a more positive way. I want to, I want to actually, um, it, while you were talking, it made me uh, remember um, a quote from the Marquis de Custine in his Empire of the Tsar, uh, about that really does capture this issue of mimicry and imitation. 
And, and this is what he says, it just so listeners have a sense of the rhetoric at the time about the emptiness or the imitation of Russia. Kustin uh, writes, I do not reproach the Russians for being what they are. What I blame in them is they're pretending to be what we are. They are still uncultivated. This state would at least allow room for hope. But I see them incessantly occupied with the desire of mimicking other nations, and this they do after the true manner of monkeys, caricaturing what they copy. They thus appear to me spoilt for the savage state, and yet wanting in the requisites of civilization, and the terrible words of Voltaire and Diderot, now forgotten in France, recur to my mind. The Russians have rotted before they have ripened. Wow, yeah. Yeah, those are those are some strong words. But yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for quoting that because this is exactly what um, Tolstoy is working with. And so, you know, I actually I really wished that the dates lined up so perfectly because then I would get to say that Tolstoy sends his very own French marquee um, to the land of the Vordelaks, to the land of these vampiric imitators. But um, because we don't quite know when uh, the family of, of the Vordelak was composed, I don't 100% know that he had gotten a chance to read um, the book, which came out in 1843, before he wrote it. But at the same time, I think, you know, that rhetoric, as Christine points out, had already been there for quite a while since the 18th century. Um, so, so, yeah, I do think that Tolstoy is absolutely um responding, I think, in a very playful way to these types of statements, meaning this construction of Russia by French thinkers, and which becomes internalized by quite a few Russian authors and uh, quite a few uh, members of the Russian upper class. Now, the vampire metaphor is is found in all sorts of, you know, social, political, economic uh, phenomena at the time, um, it, you know, it really is, uh, I don't know, it, it, it functions as a commentary on modernity as, it, as it's developing in the 18th and 19th century. I mean, one could even, you know, point to say Marx's famous use of the vampire as the, the bourgeoisie as a vampire sucking the juices of the proletariat. Um, what, what, what are some, some other like metaphors in that realm that the vampire stands for that, that strike you? Well, if we're, if we're sticking with monsters, which which I, I, I suppose we we want to, um, I think that um, there's there's this really interesting historical kind of alternation that takes place between um, a, a jump in popularity of vampire fiction and then a a jump in popularity of zombie fiction. And so I think that, you know, we are very, very drawn to this figure of the undead who refuse to stay dead. Um, and so I think the vampire um, arises at particular moments and the, and, and the vampire becomes a particularly um, 
a particularly useful metaphor at times where, um, such as in the 18th century, when we see a lot of border realignments and this kind of confrontation with the other, whether culturally or actually geopolitically. And I think then the zombie uh, becomes very, very popular um, and kind of you, you see such a jump in zombie fiction, I think of late particularly, um, uh, because it, um, it functions in a different way. So for instance, um, Paul Krugman a few years ago published a book called Arguing with Zombies, right? Where he likens zombies to zombie ideas, right? That have been proven false again and again. They've proven to be actually actively harmful. So I'm thinking of trickle-down economics, for example. It's a zombie idea. But they continue to rise from the grave, right? Just kind of just brain dead and attacking us over and over again. And so I think obviously, you know, the vampire is, um, it tends to be thought of as kind of a, a more of a single figure. Um, it is um, kind of uh, wrought with issues of class, of alterity, of otherness, cultural, um, you know, even, uh, even you know, sexual, um, you know, gender, etc. And the zombie in the meantime is kind of thought of um, more as a mass um, and I think arises at different cultural crises. Um, and so I think that's why we see a little bit more zombies these days than vampires. One of the things I thought of, and I guess your article is addressing this to some extent, that this this constant rumination that pops up in Russian culture, in Russian intellectual circles around the issue of Russian identity is in a way a, a kind of undead thing itself, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I and you know, so much of Russian thought is just so intensely concerned with the question of what is Russian identity. Um, and you know, it's in fact it hardly thinks about anything else. Um, it's still even to this day. And this is why, you know, if I can if if I can insert a fun anecdote, or at least one that I think is really fun, is uh, when um, Abram Turtz, uh, the the dissident twentieth century writer, he wrote um, this book called Strolls with Pushkin, which is this very very playful. Um, a book about Pushkin himself, about his art. Um, Turtz was, of course, also a really good literary critic. But he had this one line, um, where there were two lines that really upset people in the Pushkin book. And one was when he called Pushkin's legs erotic little legs, and that really upset people. But the other one was um, he basically kind of reread uh, Dostoevsky's Pushkin speech, in which Dostoevsky said that Pushkin has this incredible ability to inhabit other cultures, to he has this universal receptivity, and then Turtz says, uh, "You know what? <laughs> Don't get too carried away. This is a vordelock that is in front of us." <laughs> And so Turtz said that something vampiric concealed itself in Pushkin's extraordinary receptivity. And so what he did is he kind of re-inscribed, and I think he was really astute in noticing exactly what you're pointing out, this kind of undead obsession with, first of all, Russian identity, and then second of all, with kind of right, if explaining or thinking about um, imitation. 
which is, you know, is certainly not um, Russia's purview solely. Every uh, writer is interested in imitation, um, at least in some way, even if it is just to, you know, kind of... Um, you know, um, in in Harold Bloom's term, misprision, right? To kind of to defeat and overcome the writers that came before. But the uh, writing itself is, of course, really interested constantly in in issues of imitation. And so it's interesting that it has become this, you know, philosophical obsession in a way. And I think Turtz really, um, really pointed it out. And it ruffled a lot of feathers when uh, Strolls with Pushkin came out. People were absolutely outraged that he called Pushkin a vampire with sexy little legs. Because, of course, how can you treat our all in that unceremonious way? But, you know, really what Turtz is doing is he's reinscribing the, the language and the realizations that are being made by A.K. Tolstoy. Um, in the early 1840s, when he kind of utilizes the, um, the vampire metaphor to talk about um, a literary and cultural appropriation. I, I, I don't know if you can, you can comment on this, but it, it certainly seems in line with, with what you, in the, the ideas that you're interrogating. And that is the, this issue of internalization of otherness by Ru the Russian you know, literati and intellectuals is, is something quite, I mean, I, I don't want to go so far as to say unique, but it, it's a persistent um, part of the, it seems part of the identity. And, and here you can, you can trace it bubbling up, you know, since the 18th century of, of, you know, internal otherness, internal, um, what am I trying to say here? This, this, it, pretty much kind of interiorizing the the image that the west has constructed about it about say the east mm -hmm. well you know i think i would probably be better off referencing um scholars that have really spent a lot of time interrogating this issue so for instance um buddy's grace uh calls you know peter the great's reforms an act of self-colonization um, and Alexander Edkin, um, he, um, he refers to Russia's state as a state of internal colonization. And so um, they've certainly spent a lot more time um, researching um, this issue. And I'm in many ways just kind of standing um, right on the shoulders of their research when I'm referencing these things in the article. But, um, but yes, there is definitely um, Russia appears to part of the search for identity seems to be uh, very much focused on this fact that Russia kind of sees itself as suspended between the East and the West, neither here nor there, kind of this eternal liminal space in a way. And it does seem to be um, uniquely um, susceptible in a way, I think, to Western um, constructions of itself. And also, too, that even even the the constructing a Russian identity that is in rejection of the West is still bound to an idea of the West, right? Even through its rejection, it, it's, it can't escape that liminal space as, as much as it, it may, you know, may try. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, but here's where, um, you know, in a way, Western Europe defines itself against this idea of the East. And so, right, we're always kind of um, inextricably 
connected in the way that we conceptualize ourselves to whatever it is we precisely want to define ourselves against. Um, and so, and so, in that case, obviously, for Russia, it is you know Western Europe, um, and for and, you know, and for Western Europe, and um, you know, as you have that fantastic series on American Russia, where there is also there is this defining of ourselves vis-a-vis this very much uh, constructed or imagined other. And finally, you know, we've been talking about this article of yours, but where does it, I'm curious, where does it fit into your larger scholarship? Well, I would like to pursue this topic further, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the process of researching, although right now I am... Um, my my closer term project involves actually the work of Fyodor Dostoevsky. So I'm really interested in the issue of narrative performance. And so that one is going to be finished first. And this is kind of, this is actually my second project that this article um, is, um, is heralding in a way. So what I'm interested in um, is the fact that um, if um, there is this association in the Western European imagination of, um, you know, vampirism in Eastern Europe. So then how do, um, specifically in my case, uh, Russian writers, how do they um, interrogate the vampire theme? Because actually, while, yes, absolutely, there's Slavic folklore about vampires and there's, you know, there's folkloric beliefs, the types of vampires we see in 19th century literature which is the first time that they really make it onto the scene, are hardly the figures of actual Slavic folklore. So, for instance, you know, in Lermontov's um, Hero of Our Time, Pechorin says, oh, I really understand the vampire. And so he doesn't mean any, any vampire. He means the vampire, which is the story that was written by Polidori. And that was published in 1819, right? That was really um, a story about Byron. <laughs> and so Peturin, when he says, I understand the vampire, right? He's not referring to the peasant crawling out of the grave in, um, in these uh, kind of folkloric encounters. He's referring to the Byronic kind of vampiric hero. And so I'm interested in the way that Russian writers actually then take up this figure of the vampire very specifically from Western literature. And they do it very self-consciously in the way that Tolstoy does. And they kind of interrogate this cross-cultural appropriation and um, construction of Russia uh, from the West. And so this is is a project that I'd like to um, pursue moving forward. That was Irina Ehrman. Irina Ehrman is assistant professor of Russian studies and the director of the Russian studies program at the College of Charleston. And her research focuses on marginality, performativity, and monstrosity in 19th and 20th century Russian literature. And she's the author of a number of articles on Fyodor Dostoevsky and Vasily Razanov. And her most recent article, which you heard just heard about, is entitled Nation and Vampiric Narration and Alexei Tolstoy's The Family of the Vudalakt, published in the January 2020 issue of Russian Review. And once again, if you're interested in reading this article, just go to the SRB podcast website and you'll be able to find a link there. So what are some of my takeaways from this interview? Uh, Unfortunately, as I said, I'm alone, so I don't have anyone to bounce off with. So still, I thought I'd, I'd keep with this new tradition and give you some thoughts. I really thought it was interesting how the vampire, which, you know, honestly, I don't know much about vampires outside of movies and comic books, 
But I thought it was interesting how the vampire emerged uh, at a period of time uh, to demarcate the West from the East, and in particularly out of the Enlightenment to establish an idea of a rational West versus a barbaric and folkloric and supernatural East. And I'm consistently fascinated with this idea of the need to construct an other uh, and its constant presence really throughout many aspects of history in the formation of one's identity. And in this case with the vampire, it was interesting how you have a two-way nature of otherness, how the West in many respects needs Russia to construct itself. And you can certainly see this today. And as well, you can see how much Russia needs the West to construct itself. So even as much as say Russia wants to be anti-Western, especially as you hear this, or unique from the West, you know, some of the rhetoric you especially hear today, Russia still is bound to the West despite its efforts to distance itself from it. I also found it interesting how the vampire, or the figure of the vampire, was a way for Russian intellectuals to interrogate Russian identity. I really like this image of how the vampire symbolized this sucking of culture from the West or imitating the West, which like we discussed in the interview, is a, this idea of imitation is, is a longstanding trope uh, amongst, you know, for Rush, how Russia is understood. But more interestingly in this case is that there is an internalization of otherness among some segments of the Russian intelligentsia. In some ways, Western-oriented intellectuals have imbibed the image of Russia that the West has painted over the last couple of centuries. And that's a really interesting phenomenon and, and a phenomenon that continues up to the present, especially if you look at the idea in some intellectual discourse in Russia today about Russia becoming a quote-unquote normal country. That, that sense of normality is based on a Western sense of what is normal. So I'd like to know what you think of all of this. Uh, if you have some thoughts, drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter, or go to the SRB podcast contact page and send me a note and a message. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you want to really help us out, please take a moment to share the the podcast on social media, tell your friends about it, tell your family, hell, tell your pets. I, I don't really care as long as more people listen. And you can always, as I said before, drop us a line on social media to let us know what you think, what works, what doesn't. And as always, if you like the podcast, we'd love your support. The SRB podcast and all of its various programmings is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions to keep it completely free without any advertisements or paywalls or any of those other things. So please help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org and join the SRB table of ranks. Until next week, bye. Look, I'm cold, I'm wet, and I'm just plain scared. I'm here with nothing to worry about. <laughs> How'd you do, I? See you've met, man faithful hand in hand he's just a little brought down because when you knocked he thought you were the candy man don't get strung up by the way i look don't judge a book by its cover i'm not much of a man 
by the light of day But by night I'm one hell of a lover I'm just a sweet transvestite From transsexual Transylvania <laughs> Let me show you a rhyme And maybe play you a sign You look like you're both pretty groovy Want something visual that's not too abysmal. We could take in an old Steve Reeves movie. I'm glad we caught you at home. Could we use your phone? We're both in a bit of a hurry. Right. We'll just say where we are, then go back to the car. We don't want to be any worry. Well, you got caught with a flat wheel. How about that? Well, babies, don't you panic. By the light of the night, it'll all seem all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. I'm just a sweet transvestite. From transsexual, transsexual.